Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer for Kodetsa, The Well, a podcast series about topics of interest to the global Ukrainian community. Today is Thursday, December 28th, 2023. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the U.S. for the Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest today is Kurt Volker, who, among other things, has been the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019, and also the U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2009. Welcome, Kurt. How are you? Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be with you um, and wishing you and everyone listening a very happy, healthy, and prosperous new year. Well, the same to you and your family. So can we start off with by having you talk a bit about your educational background and your professional career? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, had uh, many Ukrainian ethnic friends, although um, was not myself. I was German, Irish and English and uh, went to Temple University for undergraduate school and George Washington University uh, School of Public and International Affairs, now called the Elliott School, to get a master's degree. Now, during that time, I also started some interest in international affairs. So I, I was an exchange student in Sweden for my senior year of high school and lived with a Swedish family and learned Swedish. Uh, I then decided to study international affairs. And during my time at Temple University, studied abroad in Aix-en-Provence, France, and learned French, worked for a summer as a waiter in, in Nice. And then um, after graduating, went back to Stockholm to work as an intern at the American Embassy in Stockholm. And then later, uh, did my graduate degree at George Washington, spent two years as an intelligence analyst with the CIA before joining the Foreign Service, uh, and then was in the State Department for 23 years, the first time, the variety of different jobs at um, the National Security Council uh, for four years, working for Senator John McCain, working as the Deputy Chief of Staff to NATO Secretary General Ward Robertson, uh, and then finally serving as U.S. Ambassador to NATO in 2008, 2009, the end of the Bush administration, beginning of the Obama administration, um, left the State Department at that time, founded the McCain Institute for uh, International Leadership, which is part of Arizona State University, started doing a lot of other private sector things, uh, also teaching, uh, served then on the Ukraine account as a special representative for Ukraine negotiations for two years while running the McCain Institute. And then in 2019, stepped down from things and, and started my own consulting firm and a new think tank affiliation at the Center for European Policy Analysis. And I've just dedicated a lot of time and energy to uh, supporting Ukraine's freedom, independence, and helping build understanding about what Ukraine really is uh, in the West, uh, in the United States, Europe, where Ukraine really suffered from perceptions that it was just somehow attached to Russia and part of the former Soviet Union, and not really understood as a historic European nation state in its own right. What is your current assessment of Ukraine and its ability to get back the occupied territories from Russia? Well, the starting point is that Ukraine survives and prospers as a sovereign European democracy, an independent state freed from Russia, freed from the Soviet embrace in the past. Um, that Ukraine exists already and will continue for as far as the eye can see. 
Um, what is being fought over now is whether Ukraine can recapture all of its territory or, or whether it is too difficult or too uh, difficult in the short term to take that territory back. And, you know, frankly, it's a war and wars are unpredictable. We don't know. Um, it is possible that something happens on the Russian side that weakens the, the Russian war effort. Uh, so we simply don't know where the territory uh, will be, say, this time next year. But we do know that Ukraine so survives as a sovereign, independent European democracy. Ukraine's fall offensive has been described in the media as a stalemate. What are your thoughts about why this happened? Well, the principal reason, I hate, I hate to say it, uh, is that the U.S. and our allies, but particularly led by the United States, slow rolled the assistance to Ukraine. We gave tremendous amounts of military support to Ukraine. You can't take away what the US and others have done, but it was slow in coming, it was piecemeal, it was denying certain weapon systems, and that gave Russia the time and opportunity to dig in very difficult defensive lines. Um, there was a fear, a, a fear of escalation, a fear of nuclear use, a fear of World War III, uh, a fear of provoking Russia of some kind. And so as a result of that fear, we didn't do what we could have done to actually help Ukraine recapture its territory faster. Now we face a much more difficult position. Does Ukraine have any strategic advantage in the war with Russia? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Ukraine has several strategic advantages. Um, the most important one is moral clarity and the support of its people, uh, that Ukraine actually has integrity as uh, a nation state, an entity, the people support the, the, the fighting back, the government recapturing territory. Russia is a decrepit and captive society. You have a small group of people around Putin who exercise dictatorial rule over the country, abuse their own people, forcing them into a war effort and are uh, gradually destroying the Russian state and the Russian economy. So Ukraine has tremendous advantages. This is why it will survive and prosper and, and Russia will struggle for a very long time. When you get to military uh, situation, um, Ukraine is more innovative. Ukraine trusts its people more. Ukraine delegates responsibility. It doesn't have the scale that Russia has. So Russia is able to throw people and bombs, dumb bombs, uh, at the war effort. Ukraine tries to protect its people as much as it can, and just can't uh, match the scale that the Russians have, but they have better technology and better uh, training, better know-how and better morale. Uh, this, this is where the matchup currently is. And then the final thing, the other strategic advantage Ukraine has is it has friends. Uh, Ukraine is going to be a member of NATO. It's going to be a member of the EU. You have countries, even without an alliance relationship today, like the US, UK, Poland, Lithuania, Germany, France, many others who are helping Ukraine, whereas Russia is having to rely on 30-year-old artillery shells from North Korea and Iranian-made drones. Uh, it is it's not a pretty situation when you look at it from the Russian perspective. So what is the significance of the EU's recent decision to open membership talks with Ukraine and Moldova? And how long do you think this process will take? It is an incredibly important decision. Uh, I know it doesn't seem like it because it's not offering immediate membership and there's still a lot of work to be done between now and whenever that happens. But for Europe to come out 
clearly and say that Ukraine is part of the European family. It will be part of the European Union. We are opening accession negotiations. This is a strategic decision on the part of the European Union. And they are realizing that Europe will never be Europe. Europe will never be safe, prosperous, uh, uh, democratic, secure, unless Ukraine is safe, prosperous, democratic, and secure as well. And uh, that recognition on the part of Europe that it depends, it's that its well-being depends on Ukraine's well-being. It's all one family. That is a huge step for Europe to take. Uh, I don't think it can be underestimated, and it ultimately will under, underline or, or underpin the decision to bring Ukraine finally into NATO as well. The U.S. and Germany uh, were not ready for that decision really at the Vilnius summit, but I think it's coming. Do you think the EU will be able to give Ukraine major financial support in 2024, despite the objection of the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban? Absolutely. Um, and I've spoken with many people in Brussels about this. The one where they actually needed Orban to agree was on granting uh, the opening of accession talks. When it comes to the funding, they're going to try to see whether they can reach an agreement with Orban through the normal mechanisms. But the reality is they have some emergency mechanisms that they can use without Orban if they have to. And so one way or the other, they will get it done in January. And do you think the Biden administration will be able to secure a deal with the U.S. Congress to give Ukraine a major new aid package in 2024? There is every reason to think that they can and will. It depends upon the agreement between the White House and the Republicans on something totally unrelated, which is the security of the U.S. southern border. Uh, we've had millions and millions of illegal immigrants over the past few years. We've had hundreds of thousands of people die because of fentanyl, which comes across the border as well. This is a legitimate issue that the Republicans are raising, saying we, we want to help Ukraine. Don't 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 be taken in by the media that says that the Republicans don't want to help Ukraine. The vast majority do. But they're saying we can't go to our voters and tell them we're giving $60 billion to Ukraine for its defense, but we're not willing to defend ourselves. Uh, they've got to be able to say we're doing both. I, I think as long as we get through that, and, and I expect we'll get through that in the first two weeks of the year, um, then yes, we should see the next tranche or the next, not just tranche, the next uh, major approval of funding for Ukraine that should be enough to carry us through all of 2024. Recently, there has been some talk of using frozen Russian assets to actually help fund Ukraine. What do you think about that concept? And do you think that might happen? Well, it's a no brainer as far as I'm concerned. Russia is using its military to destroy Ukraine, causing hundreds of billions of dollars in damage. The money that we're talking about, Russian central bank reserves, is all money that the Kremlin has kept for itself. The Russian people would never see any of these funds. Russia is committing war crimes and, and all kinds of war crimes from use of chemical weapons, to abduction of children, to uh, sexual abuse as a, as a technique of war. Just so many things that the Russians are doing. Of course, we should seize these assets. What is interesting is that the objections that some states, including the United States, have had to seizing these assets appear to be softening. Um, they, the, the harder it is, to pass the next tranche of 50 billion euros or $60 billion, the more attractive those funds sitting in bank accounts begin to look. 
And I think that uh, Europe is starting to uh, get serious about looking at how they're going to seize these assets. The U.S., I think, will as well. Congress is going to push for this, but we don't have as many Russian assets in the U.S. Uh, the bulk of them are in Europe, and that's where they, they need to be seized. All right. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but I do have one final question. What do you think would be the global consequences if Ukraine loses its war with Russia? Well, you're buying time for Putin to rebuild, um, to attack Ukraine again, to attack other countries that it believes should be part of the Ruskimir, so the Baltic states and maybe Finland and certainly Poland, um, Georgia, northern Kazakhstan, Armenia. So you're you're setting the stage for a wider war of, of uh, Russia's insatiable imperialist appetites. You're also sending a signal to China and Iran that the West lacks the will to fight, that uh, if we can't uh, defend a country like Ukraine against Russia, we just walk away, uh, then it gives them every encouragement to think that they can get away with their regional ambitions, whether it is China with Taiwan, uh, Iran with uh, Israel and various other regional conflicts where it's a part, uh, it will send exactly the wrong signal and set the stage for a widening global conflict. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsia. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Been a pleasure. And again, uh, best wishes to you, um, to all the Ukrainian American community, and let's all pray for victory in 2024. Thank you. I have been speaking with Kurt Volker, former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations and also U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2009. This episode of Kredica is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a podcast series about topics of interest to the global Ukrainian community. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kredica. Until next time, that's all for now.